For 26 years, Tony Delroy was at the helm of a nightly nationally broadcast late show called Nightlife on the ABC. He fronted the show with barely a sick day, offering his listeners an informative entertainment into the early hours of the morning. Delroy's enormous breadth of interest and knowledge helped to garner his success, along with the passionate understanding of his audience. Nightlife featured a team of experts every week. These included motoring, literature, movies, American politics and travel. He presented engaging variety that supported the delivery of current affairs and the news. Delroy's career began while he was studying for his HSC. He secured a job in the newsroom at 2SM, moving to the newsroom at the ABC whilst waiting for university to commence and the study of journalism. Rolls as a news director eventually arrived and so began the deprivation of a sleep-in, with early rises a requirement of his job. The late start of nightlife and finish at 2am continued for another couple of decades. His positions in radio seemed to require a night owl existence. He has now stepped down from his prominent position and is embracing retirement with his love of travel and the arts. It's a treat to hear that voice again and be given an insight into the world of late night radio. Yeah. And, you know, like you, you get one hit and 15,000 things you've never heard of. And uh, so now it's very tight and it's a lot of stuff that I know and uh, I feel very relaxed with it. It's good. Yeah, good. Have in the background. Well, thank you for, for chatting to Stages. Um, Thanks, Peter. It's lovely that you've been a bit of a, uh, a listener. I have. Um, so, uh, much appreciated. Very much impressed by it. It's uh, wonderful insights. And a few other people I do know, like Tony Sheldon and uh, Bruce, who uh, was... Uh, fascinating insights about them that I wasn't aware of. So well, I think it's good. really important to capture... Um, some oral histories and uh, get an insight into our industry from the various perspectives, including yours. Indeed. And the stage that you've um, trodden for, was it a good 26 years that you were in nightlife? Yes. Uh, a lot longer than that on radio, though. I think uh, totally, probably about 40 or 50 years. So I started at 2SM in 1969 while I was still at school. Right. You were doing your HSC, weren't you? I was. And the story was that I asked my grandmother, uh, you know, whether she could help me stitch up the early part of my career because she was one of my great inspirations. And she said, well, look, I can do my best to try and help you, but uh, you've got to tell me what you want. And I said, well, I'd love to get into radio. Can you help? He said, leave it with me. I'll get back to you. So what happened was she paused for about two or three months and came in and said, okay, I've signed you up for a three-month course with a person called Bryson Taylor. And he used to be an old ABC broadcaster from uh, the year dot, from almost when the station opened. Was he Australian or English? Yeah, Australian. He used to do uh, a community singing on a Sunday night on the ABC. You know, people of a vintage would know him. Uh, I had a friend who used to ring up his office just so he could hear the Bryson Taylor speaking <laughs> as he answered the phone. A very impressive voice, beautiful. Resonance. Uh, resonance, yeah. yeah, amazing. And so I thought, well, I'll do that for about 10 or 12 weeks, and I love that. And I thought, well, this is really what I want to do. I wanted to do journalism and public relations, and my grandmother then 
searched high and low, and this was a long time before the internet, and she came back to me in about two months. She said, look, Macquarie University have got a an arts degree with one journalism unit in it. Not worthwhile. But she said they're just beginning a course at what is now Charles Sturt University. And that is journalism and public relations uh, full-time. And uh, a degree. So I, I thought, that sounds like the path. But it meant going to Bathurst, to the campus there. So, so Granny was your first researcher? Essentially. She was a very powerful woman. She was one of those ladies who... Uh, she was an executive at a shipping company called Hudded Parkers, which was in uh, Bridge Street in the city. And we used to spend a lot of time hanging around the offices there in uh, number 8 Bridge Street. And she was one of those go-to people. If you needed uh, advice before internet became available, she'd eke it out because she had friends who knew friends who were uh, great friends. So, uh, you know, it was fantastic fun. And she basically set up the early part of my career. So so what was the fascination with radio? Were you a- an avid listener more so than television? And- oh, very much so. I, I was um, born in the era that was pre-TV. So I was born in 1953, and for the first four years, basically, there wasn't you know, anything much TV-wise. So we listened to radio every night. Uh, that was and our big entertainment. Your, your, your serials and your variety uh, entertainment. Absolutely. And it was... Um, I was glued to it for years and years and years, and I, I just loved the sound, the, loved the drama. I used to listen to the cricket overnight from England, you know, when they were doing the... Not the synthetic test, that was a bit before my time, but we were we used to listen to the Australia-England cricket uh, until the wee small hours, and uh, we, we just absolutely loved the sound of the radio. And, and if uh, you were born 10 years earlier, you probably would have made your career in television, I guess, as a lot of those radio people, Graham Kennedy, for example, were, were nabbed to sort of be those, those presenters on television. Well, I knew Graham Kennedy quite well, and uh, there's a wonderful story about the early days of TV that he passed on to me. He said, Look, you know, I was working at, uh, with Nicky doing uh, 3UZ mornings. And he said, uh, what happened was Channel 9 sort of said, look, we're about to kick off uh, live TV in Australia and we want you to be part of it, but don't give up your day job. So essentially what he had to do was five mornings a week, he would get up and go and do this three-hour radio shift at 3UZ. And then he would go to Richmond and start working up the hour, hour and a half live TV for that evening. So he used to be doing radio and TV together for quite some time in order to, you know, kickstart his career. And he said the beauty part about it was it was the ultimate apprenticeship because no one actually knew what TV was. It was just this funny vision on uh, on a box. So and everyone was learning on the job. I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, he said one of the big problems that we had early on with in Melbourne tonight was the fact that a lot of comedians through their career had basically had one act. You know, right. you'd be you're on the circuit. You did your stand-up routine. The audience would see it here, and then a different audience would Absolutely. see it Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you'd, you'd be on the road, you'd be constantly... But you'd essentially do one act. With TV, they get the comedian on, and they say, well, that's fantastic. What are you doing tomorrow night? 
No, that's oh, it. No <laughs> that's my act. <laughs> so uh, he said it was a bit of a shock for people who'd done vaudeville because, uh, you know, it was just a matter of, yes, that's fantastic, but what's next? Mm. So Anthony Eric Delroy... Is Eric a family name? Yes, it was my father's name. Uh, we had this strange twist when uh, mm, yeah, it was A-E-E-A for about four generations. So uh, different names. My, my father was Eric Arthur. And I'm Anthony Eric. And we had um, uh, a little bit of a dispute about, uh, you know, the family itself. There was uh, a lot of tensions early on um, when we were um, about three generations back we were essentially Melbourne based and my grandfather had a huge dispute with his father Um, I'm not sure exactly what it was all about but he decided to uh, move from uh, Melbourne to Sydney and they literally never looked back Uh, they uh, that part of the family was Exorcised, except for one lone aunt who was prepared to bridge the gap. Right, and uh, but uh, the, the family literally split at that uh, grandfather level. So you're a Sydney boy. Yes, uh, we bo- you grow up? born up uh, in the Darlinghurst area, and in fact, uh, there was a, a little bit of an irony because um, when I was born, um, we were living in Forbes Street, Darlinghurst, which was right next to the ABC. Uh, where I worked for wow. 30 years. Yeah. And so I literally was playing in their backyard um, when I was two, three, four, five, six years of age. That's a lovely synchronicity. Yeah. yeah. And we decided that um, at that point, you know, we moved. My dad was an electrical contractor and he had a good business around that Bondi area. So we moved from Darlinghurst to Bondi. And we spent a lot of our time in an area called Rose Bay North. And uh, that's where we essentially grew up from seven till I left home. So you had siblings? uh, Yes, my sister Sandra. Uh, She's uh, slightly younger than me, although... Um, She, uh, she, to be honest, had the the style and the flair in the family. So she was always uh, overshadowing me rather than... You know, big so, brother. Um, what, academically or as a performer? Yeah, just, just as a person, I think. She's just absolute charmer and, and a wonderful personality and, you know, a great person. And, uh, you know, we're, we're very, very close. It's great to hear siblings mm. who, are, who are so close. Did you perform as a child? Involved in, in I did a lot of school theory? stuff. Yeah. Um, we did... Um, in fact, I went to the Central West Drama Festival at Coonabarabra in about 1969 uh, with um, a production that we'd done at Cathedral where you know I spent the last couple of years of school and we had such a good production. And I sort of said, well, let's take it on the road. And uh, it, uh, it was a Cain and Abel story, essentially, but it worked really well. It was uh, you know, very current in, in the late 1960s. And uh, edgy, I think, is the best way of describing it. And we absolutely won the Central West Festival with it, so that was nice. Uh, of course, you're playing to a live audience, which can be quite electrifying to, to have that applause at the end. Is it lonely when you're doing a radio show and you don't... Well, I suppose you're in talkback, so you are getting an audience response, aren't you? We very much were um, 
a thing that grew like topsy because essentially what happened was I had been working for government for about three or four years in Canberra, um, or Canberra-related, and uh, an opportunity uh, came up for me to leave that job and uh, to you know look for some new horizons. So I had been doing some uh, Saturday sports and some um, Saturday breakfast broadcasting for 702 in Sydney, which is the local ABC. And they said, well, look, uh, if you've got any ideas, just put them on paper and send them in. So I wrote up about two or three fool's cap pages and gave it to our station manager at the time, Peter Wall. And he said, oh, look, uh, the ABC being the ABC, I'll uh, refer it upstairs and expect to hear it in four years' time. So I said, not a problem. And uh, two days later, he said, I've referred it upstairs and I love it. And uh, can you start really soon? Because we want to advance the plot. And I said, well, I finish on the 30th of March. And he said, well, why don't you start on the 1st of April? April Fool's Day couldn't be better. <laughs> and so I uh, literally, you know, kicked off from that point. It was, it was a small program at that stage. It was only about uh, two and a half hours uh, from about 10.30 to 1 o'clock. And it was only in New South Wales. However, at the end of the year, they said we'd like to expand the horizons if we could. And uh, literally from year two, we were going to Victoria, Tasmania and Queensland and South Australia. And um, as a result of a little bit of success, we uh, expanded out to a national program within three years. So we were doing Western Australia and Northern Territory within that time. Well, you achieved the longest continually running radio program in Australia, didn't you? We did. Yeah. yeah. So that was a, a record. What was previous to that? Blue Hills or something? <laughs> Blue Hills, yes, was very long indeed. But we we had a we had a, a, a bit of a lucky streak as well because we had um, very basic. Um, support you know we worked with you know literally the smell of the oily rag couple of people in fact my first producer couldn't type which was a little bit of a downside thanks Max and we decided to uh, expand slowly and so what happened was that eventually the show moved to three hours and eventually four hours and it became you know terrific listening I think over the over the period simply because of the variety we didn't know quite exactly what we were going to do but we decided not to follow any news trend you know because we figured by 10 o'clock in the night every news story in any publication had been well and truly done and dusted so we used to sit around in a kitchen for probably two three hours a month and just plot and plan, just stuff that we'd seen, stuff that we'd read, interesting things that had come our way. And we would plot and plan and have the first hour shows for about three to four weeks, all on schedule. So we were, you know, we knew exactly what we were doing in a month's time. Well, you've got an an enormous breadth and of interest and knowledge and mm. that must have been crucial to the success of the show because you featured a team of experts every week motoring literature movies american politics superannuation even mm. travel uh, so you really knew your audience and what they wanted 
the hip pocket nerve is always a very good thing to start with. And it, the heart and the hip, uh, that is a, a very important part of the equation. And we, because it's late night, you can actually spend a fair bit of time on getting it completely covered. And we spent a lot of time finding the right people to host the segments that we were going to have, particularly in the first hour. And uh, it was critical. And, and also, the listeners started to just love the fact that um, they were, it was a continuing story. You know, for example, the psychologist that we had, um, she'd present various issues over a month, month and a half, and people would feel very comfortable to call in and to ask sometimes quite personal questions or make personal statements about what their life experience was. And it's very much a community thing, uh, despite the fact that we had listeners in every continent by the time it finished. We were in a situation where we, we felt as though it was a community involved in in the radio show. And um, we had extraordinary response from people in the United States, from UK, from uh, particularly Asia. You know, we were getting a lot of calls, for example, from Bangkok. Uh, you know, a lot of expats in that community. Well, with the advent of the internet, I suppose, the streaming services and yeah. all that Well, particularly not, the last 10 years, you know, it, it, uh, it essentially with digital calls, it allowed people to call in from anywhere in the planet. What we would do often encourage listeners who were traveling overseas, for example, if you were going to the south of France for a holiday, call in and, um, you know, let us know what's happening and also to interact with our quiz, our challenge that was on at midnight every every Monday to Friday. And that worked really well because it felt as though, you know, it was a, a real community and we just loved that aspect to it. And I had so many people who were distraught uh, when the program was announced it was coming to an end. In fact, one long-time listener, John from Brighton, uh, rang in and said, um, Tony, I will pay you for the next year if you stay. <laughs> and I said, well, John, I'm sure the ABC would love you, but uh, we have really decided to pull the plug at this time. And, you know, it was just a, one of those moments in my life where I thought, well, uh, I think it's now. And I felt right about doing it. And three years on, I still feel right about doing it. What time did you wake up this morning? Uh, normally about 8.30. I'm very consistent. I uh, don't... I'm not an early-to-bed sort of person. I never have been. I, You know, from all those years back when I stayed up all night listening to the cricket, uh, very much like 1, 2 a.m. sort of person. Uh, and that's what I've kept going. at 2 a.m., I guess it's 3 by the time you wind down and get to bed. Oh, it's normally 4. 4 o'clock, really? Yeah. yeah. No. So you were able to sleep through midday or something? Uh, not that far. I normally slept till about 11. And I had quite an active day as well because I would be in the office probably from about 3.30, 4 o'clock most afternoons, three afternoons a week. And uh, we used to do uh, literary lunches at that time, so quite often you'd be out of bed at 11 and at lunch at 12.30. So that happened. And there were plenty of other events related to the show uh, which required me to be active. And it, it, it all worked. I you know, uh, would think that probably a 50-hour, 55-hour week was common. But it was a lot of fun to do. 
Right. So uh, there's no aftermath on your b- body clock or anything now. No. I look. To be honest, I am You're so a like a flight attendant. Were you? You were keeping all sorts of. Well, no. I, I mean, the, the beauty was that it was really regular. Right. Every day of the week was the same. Yeah. I, you know, like. At Saturday and Sunday, I wouldn't be going to bed at eight o'clock. <laughs> you know, I'm you know one of those people who was happy to be out and about until eleven, twelve, one, two, and uh, knew that I'd get up at eleven and feel fine. And seven, eight hours was enough for me. I, I'm not uh, didn't need any more than that. That gentleman who offered to pay you, I can I can understand that because you were. Developing a very intimate relationship with your listeners, weren't you? Yes. You were people that were just going to bed, insomniacs, the elderly, people who live by themselves. Um, you were a constant in their lives. And the real surprise was that, you know, we would capture people quite often um, in very odd situations. Like uh, one person said that they had come out from the UK and they had spent five or six weeks just rolling around Australia listening to the radio at night and da da da. And they became so addicted to the show that when they went back to the UK, they had to have a lunchtime break for two and a half hours and uh, kept up with the show. And, uh, you know, that was an important part of, you know, a, uh, a remembrance of the holiday and also a remembrance of the individuals that, uh, you know, they were love to listen to half the magic of the show is the listeners who called in Mm. you know they became part of the fabric of the show and you know we had one uh, lady Eileen from Cairns when she passed away uh, we had people who actually flew to Cairns to go to the service and she had cards and letters and flowers from all over the country because people just loved it and that happened a lot we had a lot of people who became so involved with the show that uh, they were like mates. I guess like your, your presenters um, who hosted the various segments, mm. uh, your listeners became, certain listeners became like cast members. Of course. Will Hagen, for example, our motoring correspondent, we found with him that there was uh, you know, women who would ring and say, I have no interest in cars, but I love the segment. And it's just one of those things. It's the sound of the voices, the sound of the communication, and, and the relationship. Yeah, that yeah, you the involvement. Mm. And you know, I'm uh, sort of a bit of a, an expert of, you know, on just about everything. I, you know, over the years, I've I read very broadly, uh, and so I had a an interest that we could spark on just about any topic that we raise. We used to do an issue of the day uh, towards the end of the program, you know, for an hour, hour and a half of open line on a specific topic. And it worked like a charm. Uh, people would come in with every conceivable angle over an hour, hour and a half of talkback. And it was just, it was magic. And uh, it was a real forum. I didn't want to be in a situation where, you know, and you get this sometimes on, you know, some opinionated radio stations where, you know, if you don't agree with the person who's hosting the show, you're, you're, off, off. you're off the ballpark. But uh, I used to love the fact that people disagreed with me or, you know, were of a different perspective to me. And that's, what he- that's what's healthy. You know, you listen to a lot of various uh, ideas and then pull them all together and say, OK, well, maybe that's changed the way I think about it. One of the highlights of the show was the quiz we talked 
mm. briefly touched on yep. that. Um, it was a uh, genius... A lot of questions. <laughs> a lot of questions. Genius convention, because it also allowed you to build relationships with your audience and, and understand who was there and calling in. But people really looked forward to that, didn't they? We had an international crew. Uh, like, from the lines are open to lines full was often about 2.5 seconds. Uh, it was quite amazing. Uh, and we... Uh, got a complaint now and again from people saying, oh, what, how come they get on so regularly? Uh, and I sort of said, well, you know, they've got the technique and they know how to do it. And then I had a lot of phone calls and letters after that saying, what's the secret? <laughs> and I said, well, look, it's not uh, anything too dramatic, but it's just one of those things where you hear a call dropping off uh, that happened seven seconds ago because of delay. So you, you know, when you think thing is winding up, that's the time to to get on the phone and to to ring in and take their place on the board. And to be honest, you know, I can't recall us ever having to say, you know, give us a, give us a bell now. We're short of calls because it was the board was literally full most of the time. Where did you get the questions from? Well, to be honest, I am, uh, as I said, a, a, an expert on just about everything you could possibly name. I um, spent a lot of time getting information in the early days. And then we had uh, a lovely woman uh, called Madame Lash who took it over. And she used to spend, I think, hours a week ensuring that we had fresh questions coming in all the time. And uh, we sort of built a database over a period of time and it was somewhere near about 60, 70, 80,000 questions that we had on a regular basis, on a rotation. Wow. And we were adding to that all the time. Yeah. And uh, Lash did a trick. In fact, uh, she was a bit of a mystery woman, but she managed to appear on the very last program of the, of the, of the, of the show. And uh, now everybody knew exactly why she'd never appeared on any other one. <laughs> what a bitch. <laughs> And our listeners about the seven second delay in radio. What? It's always a little bit frightening. Uh, it does actually give you a bit more time than you think of. Um, I, we very rarely had uh, need to censor people because, to be honest, uh, the standard of language uh, was always reasonable. You know, we you know got the odd you know four letter word that came through, and you think, oh, you know, was that necessary? Uh, but, I mean, it was an, essentially an adult audience, so I don't think that anybody was going to be particularly shocked by it. Uh, and, you know, if, if it happened too often, well, we'd just end the call. But, you know, it, it, I think the, the um, certainly if you'd sworn uh, in a, you know, in a four, five, four letter words in the 70s, 80s, you probably would have been suspended. But by oh, the. Famous crow call. Uh, of course, yeah, uh, Kennedy, yeah. by the 21st century, you know, I think most people knew that it was reasonably acceptable, but, mm. you know, it's an adult audience, you've got to be responsible. And so we'd say, you know, that's not necessary, don't do that. And nine times out of ten, people would respond. Now, occasionally it would be an accidental slip, uh, occasionally sort of a planned slip, I think, but uh, anyway, that happens. A glorious spin-off of the show was the literary events. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, how did they come about? Well, essentially what happened was um, 
the Dimmicks company um, said, look, we are very keen to do literary lunches on a, on a regular basis and we want to develop a, a radio release of them. And he said, we're going to have some pretty good names. And the thing that got me a bit interested was the very first one was Roald Dahl. <laughs> and I said, they said, would you like the Roald Dahl literary luncheon? And I said, would I what? I absolutely would. And we replayed it, you know, in the last couple of years of the show because it was just one of those... It actually was one of the last things he ever did. He did the literary luncheon while he was in Australia. He went home and didn't survive much past that. And so it was one of the major speeches that he'd done, and it was just magic. But we had every Prime Minister. We had, uh, you know, as you can imagine, over... 25, 26 years of literary events, uh, there wasn't too many literary figures that we didn't uh, get a hold of. And it provided a forum for the long-form interview as well, didn't it? It allowed you to talk at length for 40, 50 minutes. Absolutely. And uh, to be honest, we were in a situation where, it, you know, it, it changes your perspective sometimes. You know, so, you know when you read the headlines, uh, you sometimes think, oh, and get a view. For example, I, I think uh, one that really struck me was Julia Gillard when she released her, well, it wasn't a biography, but it was a, a book about her time in the, in the top spot. And she was very interesting. I Just sitting there and communicating with her on a one-to-one basis, I'd only seen her at gatherings where she'd been there with multiple people. And it just gave me an opportunity to talk to her one-on-one and it changed my mind on a lot of things. Right. And she was able to explain to me a little of the internal Labor Party politicking at the time yeah. and gave me a very different perspective on it. And the beauty part about it is once you've done it in the pre-lunch session, uh, you can then bring certain elements of that conversation that you've had one-to-one to the general audience when we were discussing the stuff on stage. I said to her, would you mind if I raise that with the uh, with you on stage? And mm. she said, yeah, no, no, I'm very happy. And um, so it just gave you an opportunity to look behind the headlines and behind the, the, the books a little bit more. And I, I was thoroughly entranced by it. It's, it was a, uh, one of those things, uh, also we used to run a summer series of literary lunches um, from uh, well, mid-January to late January. And we got such a big response from people who hadn't heard the first broadcast. Late nights is obviously not for everybody because uh, a lot of people are you know, getting up at the crack of dawn and listening to a literary luncheon at 10 o'clock at night's not their cup of tea. But we, during the summer literary series where we re-ran them, found a whole new audience and you know people absolutely love them Gee, the job must have kept you constantly reading and watching and yeah. listening just to be informed as i said 50 hours a week but it was a lot more than that simply because you get to a point where you think okay well there's some programs i have to watch to make myself up to speed with things and i am an avid reader anyway i i tend to you know read novels i tend to read uh, fiction, uh, faction, everything really. Um, so it's a very broad scape, but you have to, you know, because of the breadth of the program, 
you had to be informed on a lot of different across, across things. Yeah. And some of it was as boring as all hell, you know. <laughs> the minutiae of superannuations, not everybody's cup of tea, but uh, the problem you've got is if you don't know the ins and outs, you can get yourself into quite a twist when you're on air because uh, you, you open it up for questions and there's a lot of people out there with a lot of very explicit knowledge and you've got to keep yourself over it and know that the information that's being given is accurate. Mm. So it's it's tough, but uh, very enjoyable and as I said, uh, an expert on everything. <laughs> Now, we got to hear regularly about your cat, Barbara. Oh, yes, the delightful Barbara. In fact, uh, she her basket was uh, not long from this uh, where we were actually putting the broadcast well, together. I mean, that, that, that was a, a technique which really helped personalise you as well, yeah. I think. Yeah, give you an identity with the listeners. She was much loved. In fact, she had her own Facebook page at one Oh, really? Time. Yes. <laughs> and we had pictures of her up on the website and the whole thing. And we're absolutely adorable part of the... Uh, the mix. Uh, she survived until 17. She was a, a quite an age when she passed, but and it was real sadness for me. Uh, unfortunately, because we've been travelling a little bit of recent years um, since since I retired, we have not had an opportunity to have another cat. But uh, you never know. Yeah, no. <laughs> Keeping the options open at this time. <laughs> but she was absolutely adorable because you know you'd get home. 2.15, 2.30, and the house was really quiet, and it was just us two stumbling around for uh, for quite a while. So it's, uh, you know, we were very much part of the furniture. Impressively, you seemed to remain unflappable and totally calm <laughs> whenever things were going wrong. I, I listened to it on a couple of nights, and everything in the studio seemed to go down and, and wasn't working, but uh, you kept your cool. We had what a, sort of things would go wrong in the studio? I've got to say, one of the things that we had <laughs> that was <laughs> the absolute nightmare, um, we'd just had some new software put into the ABC studios and they said, well, you know, things can go a little bit awry. Just be aware that it could go amiss. So oh, about night four or five, everything seemed to be going along okay. I was doing a trivia night with Rod Quinn. And so our first hour was we used to ask people for tough questions and we would respond on the same issue. You know, they'd give us a tough cricket question. We'd fire back with a similar sort of thing. And the program got underway. I did some few bits and pieces. And uh, I just about to introduce Rod and I just turned the microphone on when the entire studio froze. And I realised that I couldn't turn any microphones off. The phones wouldn't work. The um, promos wouldn't work. All we had was the two of us with the microphones on and the news which was due in 50 minutes. And no opportunity at that time to do open line. And they said, the only way to fix this is to reboot the studio. And that will take at least five minutes, which we can do at the top of the clock. So Rod and I sat there for 50 minutes just chatting about everything and uh, asking each other questions and generally having a bit of, bit of a fun. But it's it's great experience. Uh, we had a, just a, an extraordinary time in that period because uh, it was just... It was the early days of new technology and... It, 
you know, they had put a lot of effort into getting it right, but inev- inevitably, you know, something would happen and you'd either freeze on, freeze off, disappear, things would, uh, you know, go into the ether. And the, part of the difficulty is also when you go into 50 radio stations, invariably one of them goes amiss at one point. And we used to have a, a situation where our localizations, which were the local promos, would fail for an entire state. And so then you had to sort of tap dance your way through that for, uh, you know, four hours. And it was not a happy time, but it's, it's a great experience. You know, you learn to be able to handle just about anything that comes along with. I remember the, uh, what was it, who uh, was standing out? Oh, Kevin Rudd's demise. Uh, we were on when that was happening. And we had a situation where... Um, I, they sort of said, oh, look, we'll uh, get somebody in from Current Affairs to talk through with it, you know. And so we started at 10 o'clock, and they said, at some stage, there'll be a press conference, but we're not sure when. We'll keep you updated. We had to talk through uh, almost an hour with, uh, you know, one person and a few other, uh, you know, experts being introduced. And we didn't actually have a, we didn't have a script. We didn't know what was going to happen next. And we weren't sure at all that we could make it through even to the next 10 minutes, let alone the next 50 minutes. And we ended up talking the entire 50 minutes as we were looking at the possibles, probables, as the uh, um, Canberra madness was unfolding. we, We had no idea exactly what was going to happen next. We got there. Well, should you ever have to deliver a filibuster... I think you'll be fine. (laughs) Thanks, Pete. (laughs) Early in your career, you had a stint in regional radio in Bathurst. Yes. I I hear stories of of announcers locking themselves out of the studio during shifts. (laughs) Does that sort of thing ever happen? I gotta say, we were, you know, lean and mean. Um, You know, there was um, one one situation where um, uh, I uh, was at home uh, the, the unfortunate part of my situation in Bathurst was I lived very quite close to the radio station so they would use me as the stopgap for everything and um, they, they at one stage rang and said oh uh, Jim's car's broken down can you go in I said I only finished four hours ago you know 1am uh, they sort of said it's okay, just do breakfast and he'll get in as soon as he can. I ended up doing the entire breakfast shift through till 10 from 5am and so I'd been on air since, well, 10 the previous night, so 12 hours right. of radio. I wasn't good towards the end though, I'm here to tell you, but uh, just keep tap dancing and hope, that's the best. The black coffee. Um, and a lot of your early part of your career was in newsrooms. You're a yes. Director, weren't you? Well, in fact, what happened was I... Um, left um, 2BS at Bathurst and then uh, spent almost a year in Dubbo for uh, 2DU. Had a strange situation arrive there where, you know, a gentleman with a beard sort of came to the door of the studio one day and said, "Um, Hi, I'm Phil and I'd like to have a beer with you. And I went, uh... Okay. <laughs> I said, well, I'm finished here in about an hour. Da, da, da. And he sort of said, I'll see you down the road. 
So he said, oh, I'm the program director of 7LA Launceston, oh. and I've been listening to you for the last three weeks, and we'd like to, you to do breakfast in Tasmania. And I went, oh, okay. I said, uh, I'm on, you know, $55 a week. You'll have, to, you'll have to do better than that. And he says, Ed, we'll give you 60 And I went, sold. <laughs> so we went to uh, Tasmania and uh, spent uh, ooh, a year, year and a bit down there doing a bit of TV and a bit of radio. And then from that point um, came back via a couple of small detours to Sydney and I started life at uh, 2GB doing um, Macquarie National News and reading that and writing a bit. And from there, I went to 2UW, and uh, where some older listeners will remember. Um, and we were part of the fun crowd for a couple of years. And uh, terrific newsroom then. It was um, at a time when John Laws was doing mornings, and Malcolm T. Elliott was doing breakfast. Uh, very successful. Uh, I think they were number one a couple of, couple of times, which is, was very rare for 2UW, but they, they hit the top of the charts. And uh, from there, uh, Steve Liedman rang me one night. I, was, I just read the 8 o'clock news and walked out into the newsroom and the phone rang and um, he said, oh, uh, Steve Liedman here. And I said, oh, yeah, how are you, Steve? And he said, mate, we've got a job here at uh, TUE for, and happy to give you a C grade if you'd like to come over. And um, it was a bit daunting at that time because the TUE newsroom was full of very senior journalists and uh, you know the young the youngest there had been there for eight years so I sort of said oh, look okay I'll I'm happy to move um, you know and that was a time when they used to do half an hour news at midday and half an hour news at six o'clock in the evening and it was a very intense 24 hour a day operation and fantastic experience and I was there for Almost thirteen years. So, uh, so as news director, what are you doing? You're assigning well, the stories, assigning stories, or? making sure the rosters work, making sure that uh, there's no catastrophes uh, going to air. Uh, we had one terrible incident where uh, Gary O'Callaghan, who was you know the number one breakfast presenter in Sydney for probably 25, 30 years. Uh, the 8 o'clock news, uh, somebody had accidentally sworn on the end of a, 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 a report that they were putting together. And uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning, uh, out over the airwaves went a four-letter word, which in those days was like the end of a career. So I had to come in and sort of say, OK, we've got to be calm here and... Uh, and they had to let the guy go. That, that's how serious everyone took it. And uh, in this day and age, as I said, it probably would have passed almost unnoticed. But uh, for 1982, it was just a, a little bit overwhelming. But, you know, that, that's what happens, unfortunately, uh, you know, in newsrooms. There's a deadline every half an hour. Mm-hmm. And it is tough. Yeah. Uh, and you trying to ensure that you're covering all the stories that you need to cover. Uh, and there was a, a lot of competition in those days between the ABC, 2GB and 2UE to be first to air. And we were, you know, spending a lot of time ensuring that we were, you know, first on the scene of everything. D- just a, a lovely story uh, that uh, is a... Uh, what, just one of the funny moments of uh, being a news director. 
we had a siege going on at Northbridge in Sydney. So it was a scenario where they um, weren't sure exactly what, what had happened, but police had been called to the area and uh, I looked around the newsroom and no one was available except a, a senior writer. And I said, look, Trevor, I, I know you don't do outside stuff, but we don't have anybody else. Everybody is in courts or, or at airports or whatever. Um, would you mind going up and, and just going into the news, the news car and just giving us some background stuff of, uh, of what's happening? He said, OK, no, no worries. So he, anyway, he takes off in the news car, we gets to the scene, and uh, he said, OK, yeah, I'm here. I, I, I know, I can see roughly what's happening, uh, you know, who... Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm OK to do a live cross at midday. So, and, you know, a siege is happening at Northbridge in Sydney. Uh, Trevor Williams is on the scene. Well, it's one of the quietest sieges you've ever imagined. It was, uh, uh, police are obviously very tense. The negotiations are continuing. They're trying to talk the gunman into surrendering and blah, 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 blah. Um, they're trying to keep it as low key as possible and da, 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 da. It went on for about uh, two, three minutes, which was fantastic. And I said, Trevor Williams reporting, blah, blah, blah. The reason why it was one of the quietest sieges ever was that he was actually in the wrong street. <laughs> <laughs> the siege was actually happening two streets away. <laughs> so the quietest siege on record was, wasn't actually quite as quiet as we reported that day. <laughs> Uh, I was fascinated to learn, you know, you, you alluded to your government job earlier on, yep. but, but you worked for the Federal Minister for Health. And, I did, uh, at a very delicate time. This yeah. was uh, when the AIDS epidemic um, began. Um, this was uh, 87, 86, 87. And uh, Neil Blewett was the Minister for Health at the time, and they decided that we were going to put in an extra effort in order to try and ensure that the epidemic didn't get out of hand so um, they took two separate strains one which was a medical strain uh, led by Professor Tony Baston and also Ida Butrose was in charge of uh, what was NACAIDS which became ANCA which is the Australian National Council on AIDS so we developed a, a strategy that um, I would work across the area so I'd work for the minister for about 30 or 40 percent I was working for the department for about 30 percent and I was working for both of these you know high profile committees this was the time of the grim reaper so you can imagine there was a, a lot of stories relating to the illness and the condition and we uh, I spent about three or four years uh, covering that and you know riding riding the rails and it was absolute you know seat of the pants stuff most of the time uh, I couldn't have been more delighted with the outcome you know Australia health wise had one of the best outcomes internationally uh, simply because the government was very proactive and put in place a lot of measures and some very brave things were done um, for example the needle exchange programs that were put in place to avoid the possibility of people reusing uh, needles and becoming infected through, you know, multiple uses of needles uh, in drug use and, and the like, and that was a, a first for Australia. And uh, the various campaigns that we ran um, with, you know, 
at-risk communities. Uh, you know, for example, um, sex industry workers. We spent a lot of time educating them. We also spent a lot of time in areas that you probably wouldn't have even imagined was involved. For example, we had to spend a lot of time with barbers because in those days uh, they used to use uh, razors that were open. Right. And if there was a nick and somebody got blood on the on the blade, yeah. um, it was you know the possibility of being transferred from one client to another. Mm. And uh, you know, for example, dental establishments. There were, you know, new security measures that were required in order to ensure that the instruments were totally clean, uh, used from one client to another. Uh, a lot of bits and pieces that had to be filled in. But Australia did an extraordinary job during that time. And the fact that the number of infections, even though they were, they were a tragic loss of life at that time... Um, it could have been a lot worse. It could have been a lot worse. And was, uh, you know, the outcomes were very positive and it was quite a, an extraordinary both government and community effort to make sure that that happened. I only heard on the radio yesterday morning on Fran Kelly's show, mm-hmm. she was interviewing someone about um, the HIV rate. Is it an all-time low in Australia? Which yes. Is, it was a total contrast to the United States. Uh, President Reagan was in office for eight years and yep. mentioned AIDS twice. Yes, yeah. Whereas we had campaigns which, um, you know, were very... Uh, I mean, Grim Reaper was criticised uh, from some areas, but what had happened was we had done a survey in 1986, discovered that nobody knew what AIDS was or how you got it or anything about it and didn't care. They didn't think it was an issue to, to look at. After the, the Grim Reaper campaign, we actually had to pull off air early. Uh, we were being overwhelmed. We had probably about, um, you know, 20 people on switchboards around the for, for the national thing, and they were just being overwhelmed. We were getting call after call after call. And there was just nowhere to fully explain everything to people because there was just so many things that, you know, we weren't even 100% sure of. Um, And this was particularly in areas like the blood supply. Um, Australia had a terrific blood system and, um, uh, you know, it's been pure for forever. All of a sudden, we had a circumstance where it was infected, and we thought, "How are we going to deal with this?" Uh, and it was really uh, a very intense effort to try and say, "Okay, well, some people will have to stop giving blood, and we will have to have new strategies to test to make sure that the product that we do have is pure as we can make it." We didn't. Some of the issues we didn't know were going to be issues. And all of a sudden, it it appeared out of out of left field. Um, there were people who um, were becoming infected, um, who were hemophilia sufferers, and this was largely from the infected blood supply. Mm. And we didn't know that was an issue until it happened. Um, and it's part of the problem was also it became very difficult for people. Um, 
who had become infected to survive in normal society because no one understood exactly what it was and they were being treated like pariahs. So we had to put a lot of effort into ensuring that people who were suffering were cared for as well. So it was a prevention and a caring strategy and was very involved and that was a, you know, 20 hours a day time. You were well and truly in the trenches then, weren't you? Absolutely. Um, We spent um, a lot of time um, doing research and getting it right and um, fortunately because a lot of money was put into AIDS research, this sort of underlines the fact that um, if you do put money into a medical issue, sometimes you can get a great result. We now have a situation where, because of the medication that is available, the viral loads can be reduced to a minimal amount, and thereby um, people are surviving decades. Mm. Whereas, unfortunately, um, when the outbreak happened in the 80s, we only had one drug, uh, which was AZT, which we could use. Uh, and horrible side effects there, didn't it? Well, the, the problem we had was it, it was a failed cancer drug. Um, Burroughs Welcome um, was the company that had AZT, and they had had it on the shelf for, for some time. They, they thought it was a, a cancer drug, but it never worked. And when the virus turned up, they said, let's give that a try. It's already been through some trials, so we know you know, it won't be damaging. But then once they started to uh, administer it, they discovered that it did work. It did inhibit the, uh, the, the virus. But they weren't sure how much to give. And sometimes the doses were very strong and, you know... Uh, it was a lot of stabs in the dark and yeah. people had no idea what they were, they were letting themselves in for, for uh, in those early days of uh, trial and error. Uh, but it, there, was, there wasn't another option, you know. There was, uh, there was nothing or AZT, which we eventually evolved into a successful treatment, but it took a long time. Must have been a, a terribly emotionally taxing time also for all of you. Every day. Is that why perhaps you might have walked away from government and pursued your career elsewhere? Yeah, it was part of the reason. I'd had a very intense three or four years and um, I just felt as though there wasn't a lot more I could do at that time. Um, And they were looking to head in slightly different directions uh, for the campaign and make it a bit more community-based rather than necessarily the national focus that they had on it. Uh, but look, I'm I'm extraordinarily proud of the campaign that we did. I mean, we did a survey. As I said, nobody knew about it in '86. Uh, we did a, a follow-up survey after Grim Reaper in '87, and three months later, we had uh, sorry, six months later, we had a 97% recall. And any television campaign that has a 97% recall after being on air for 10 days mm. is phenomenal. And, you know, look, it may not have been the perfect strategy, but it was the, it's the but only thing it, we could do at the time. It alerted people to yes. the arrival of AIDS. Yeah. People still talk about it. 
Yeah, uh, and you know, it's it certainly had its critics, but it also uh, it was also quite brave. Mm-hmm. I mean, the for you know governments to say uh, in advertising campaigns, uh, don't use drugs, but if you do, use them safely. I've never heard that before, uh, but they had to do that. Mm. Uh, they said, "Look, don't use drugs, but if you do, here is a way you can use them more safely." Mm. And that was a brave campaign for a government government to say, "You know, you can use drugs safely." To acknowledge that it was that yeah. is a very big step. Mm. And um, the, the thing that I think I'm most proud of with the Australian system at the time is we put that to both sides of politics. We said we took it to the coalition that was in opposition at the time and the government and said, look, if we say this, are you going to be okay with it? Because it's a a safety issue, a health issue. Um, We we understand it's controversial and and both sides considered it and both sides said, look, we think under the circumstances you you have to say that and we won't criticise you if you do. So they allowed the, uh, the the campaign to go ahead without criticism. So that that helped, you know. It, you know because it it's a health issue, and both sides had to be locked into where we were going, and we did. We we constantly were in conversation with both sides of politics. Let's go back and revisit little Anthony Eric Delroy. Yep. Do you recall the first radio program that you that you listened to? your first awareness of this medium called radio? I think it was largely um, the radio serials that were on at the time. Uh, you know, When a Girl Marries, for those in love and those who can remember. So this married at first. The <laughs> <laughs> runner. My, my mum used to listen to them all the time, but I, I used to sort of... It, I got it almost by osmosis, so... Uh, we we were you know Tarzan and you know um, a, a lot of the early stuff, and we, the the goons were you know a very big part of that sort of early radio memories as well. They were fantastic and phenomenally funny, and we um, my dad and I used to absolutely love the goons on radio. Who were your radio heroes? Well, um, I had. Uh, I just don't know whether they'd be people who that people would know, but Bob Dyer, Jack Davey. Yeah, um, look, Eric Bohm was a, an early, um, you know, controversial broadcaster on GB, and I used to love listening to him. So an early shock jock, or yeah, well, it, it was sort of a, a very limp shock jock, really. But he, yeah. you know, he always had an opinion. He was, he used to host Beauty and the Beast at one time oh, on, right, te- yeah. on television. Yeah. And uh, Steve Liebman I used to listen to a lot. Uh, Ian Parry Oakton I used to work with. And, and uh, John Pierce was a, a great early hero of mine. I used to read news for John when he was doing Nights on TUE. And uh, he, the only person I know who could change his view on something within 30 seconds. At one moment he'll be arguing it's black and... Uh, 30 seconds later, no, it's absolutely white. Not a problem, not a problem. And he was uh, he was phenomenal for that. He could often end up uh, having an argument with himself, which was bizarre, but, uh, you know, it was entertaining radio. And I, I worked with Laws early, and John was fantastic. Um, 
Alan Jones, uh, very early days of his career, we, uh, we were in the same studios. It was all fun. Laws retired and then he returned. Yes. Do you think Tony Delroy might return? Look, never say never, I think is the best way of putting it, Pete. But uh, it's been three long years and I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. We, uh, we've had a chance to do the travel that we promised ourselves. And we have had a great time over that period of time. And I'm really enjoying the fact that uh, I have, you know, a, a different... Um, a different perspective on life because when you're doing daily radio it's it's very intense you know you really are even if you're not listening to or reading something about something that you're going to discuss that night or whatever you're accumulating stuff and you feel like a sponge after a while and I'd reached after you know 50 years on air a, a situation where I thought it's time for me to just have a bit of me time and to and to regroup and to start, you know, enjoying some of the things that I've I've set myself up for. And it was a difficult decision. I said to the management that um, I was thinking about exiting and uh, that I was going to not say anything. Saying something at the end of a year after a hard year of broadcasting is is probably not the way you decide things so I said I'm what I'm going to do is I'm going away and I'm having a, a long sea journey I'm uh, at sea for about 30 40 days and I'm just going to have a bit of a think about what I want to do so I was sitting there on the deck one day and saying no nah, it's time yeah. and I came back and let them know that it was time and uh, they said um, you know can we change your mind and I said no no I, I, I've thought about it for a long period of time and I'm very happy with my decision. Three years on, I'm happy with my decision. Well, I, like much of Australia, miss going to bed with you every night. Yeah, and I went um, to, more, uh, to bed with more people than Mogadon, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I must admit, I was never awake at 2am when you signed up. <laughs> Did you, was there a regular sign-off that you had? Not really. I just uh, wished everybody uh, well for the upcoming day and uh, and uh, a promise of things to come. The good, good part about radio is the fact that it's 24 hours a day, it's continuous, and, uh, you know, what we want is for us to become part of your schedule, your day. And what we needed you to do was to commit that uh, at some stage in the next 24 hours you'd come back and visit us again. Unfortunately, people did, which is a nice, a nice thing. Gee, I enjoyed my chat with Tony Delroy. He's a master of the airwaves and offered great insight into the role of the broadcaster. Let's hope we hear him on radio again very soon. Please subscribe to the podcast and stay up to date with every new guest episode as it is released on stages. We're available in iTunes, Spotify and Wooshka. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast. It helps to grow our audience and reach more Stages listeners. This has been another exciting episode of Stages. I'm Peter Ayers and thanks for listening.